Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Tech Strong Women, where we feature amazing women doing amazing things in tech. I'm Jody Ashley, executive producer here at TechStrong, and I'm here with my co-host, Tracy Reagan, creator and CEO of Deploy Hub. And, you know, in her free time, she's busy working with the Linux Foundation, where she sits on the board of the OpenSSF and the CDF Technical Oversight Committee. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to give you a quick update on what's happening here at TechStrong. Registration is open for DevOps Unramp on May 4th. Speaker submissions are open, and we always love sponsors. Registration is also available for TechStrong's DevOps Connect DevSecOps Day at RSAC in San Francisco on April 24th. Be sure to look for us at the Moscone West on Broadcast Alley, where we will be live streaming all week. So stop by and say hi. You can register for all of our events by going to techstrongevents.com and be sure to tune into TechStrong TV every day for amazing interviews and content. All right, Tracy, what's on your mind today? So over the weekend, um, my in-laws called us frantic because they got hit with ransomware. Ooh. And, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, ransomware is so scary, uh, especially for, you know, older people to have to deal with. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, they just just don't know enough to prevent ransomware. And so I thought I'd do a little digging to see if there was something happening out there in the ransomware world. And sure enough, there was, I call it a rash of ransomware attacks over the last week. And they actually were able to, according to Reuters, um, they broke into the Florida Supreme Court. <laughs> and, several, <laughs> and several universities. Um, that apparently, they only, they only brought home about um, $88,000, which is a drop in the bucket considering to our past ransomware problems. This was a specific problem around VMware, uh, and VMware has put out a fix and said, okay, update your systems if you're using VMware. But I just thought it was a, a worthy thing to talk about because we were all worried about a balloon floating over our heads at the time, <laughs> and people were being hit with ransomware attacks, which are still real and still a problem, and people still should be looking out for it. And, you know, we had uh, Jamie Thomas on a call. Um, she's with IBM, a high-level exec, and she said something um, that I'll never forget. And she said, we can do a whole lot to secure our software, but it's the human that opens the door. Uh, so how do we continually fight this, this, um, these sneaky ways of ransomware um, taking over our machines and making a hell of a weekend for older couples who have no idea how to fix it? Uh, so that's my newsworthy tip of today is to check out the ransomware um, uh, attacks that hit us last week, including potentially the, the uh, Florida Supreme Court, which, according to Reuters, they did not respond. <laughs> wow. That's crazy to me. It's uh, the Florida Supreme Court. That's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, it can hit anybody. Wow. It's not just, you know, grandma and grandpa, right? Absolutely. But, you know, the grandma and grandpa part is is pretty scary because it's, you know, they're the ones that are being targeted because they're the ones who are most likely to be fooled into, oh, your child or someone in your contact list is reaching out. Click on exactly. this, you know, exactly. so that's exactly. that's real. Well, thanks, Trace. 
All right, we're ready to get rolling here. I want to introduce you guys to our guests today, Adriana Valela and Anna Margarita Medina, um, a couple of my newly found pals um, who've been partnering with us on the SRE show. And um, they're both working at Lightstep these days. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about them. Adriana, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So my name's Adriana Vilela or Adriana Vilela. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, so I often pronounce, but I've been in Canada for like 33 years now. So <laughs> I, uh, I just anglicized my name a lot easier to deal with. <laughs> um, uh, I'm a developer advocate uh, at Lightstep. This is my first developer advocacy role, but I feel like I've been preparing for it my whole life. Um, most of my career has been in Java development, like for 16 years moved over to um, the DevOps side of things and fell in love. Um, and everything's been just trending towards like the DevOps SRE observability side of things. And, um, you know, I've blogged a lot about all sorts of tech things and, uh, and that's what, uh, that's what got me um, my developer advocate role at LateStep. So here I am happy to be here. Nice. All right, Anna, you're not, you're up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hi, all. My name's Ana Margarita Medina. I'm also representing Latinos. Uh, I was born and raised <laughs> in Costa Rica. My parents are from Nicaragua, and I now reside in San Francisco, California. Um, I work as a staff developer advocate over at Lightstep, and I've been working in the SRE space for a few years. Prior to my current role, I was doing chaos engineering at a startup called Gremlin. And prior to that, I was an SRE at Uber and doing cloud infrastructure and developer platform there. Um, and prior to finding the space of DevOps and SRE and infrastructure, I was actually one of those developers that just focused on code. So I started out in front end, moved on to back end and uh, mobile applications uh, shortly after. And it worked on my machine and it was someone else's problem. So it was kind of fun. <laughs> To end up in SRE and be like, I'm on call for systems. Like that's that's not what I what I write. <laughs> Wait, that's not what I signed up for. <laughs> so it's it's kind of nice to bring a full circle nowadays and be able to like talk about when I was just a front-end developer and didn't care about anything else. So now kind of looking at a whole system and finding ways to make it more reliable and I work in the open source community with CNCF projects such as Captain and Open Telemetry. And that's where I think we should start our conversation today. Um, I am a huge, huge advocate for CD events. Um, we have for now quite some time built these um, pipelines that are very, um, well, they're not declarative, let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> They're far from being declarative. Everything is, is scripted. Every workflow has to have its own pipeline file. And it is a, um, it's a problem. It really is. Because at this point, uh, in terms of security, let's ask, you know, a large enterprise that have hundreds or maybe thousands of pipeline workflows that they have to update to add SBOM generation to the process. Captain was one of the first kind of tools that I really started looking at that was taking the event processing and having an event listener with a payload a little more serious, please. And, and you know, the CD Foundation um, <laughs> has a whole CD events group that's working closely with Captain. 
Um, and there's an, I think there's a few other tools that are finally starting to think about, you know, how to make events work. But Anik, tell us about Captain. Tell us about uh, CD events and why they're important. Yeah, so Captain is a project that got started in want to say 2019. Times a little bit of a blur, you know, um, with uh, folks from Dynatrace trying to find ways to make sure that we think about SRE operations, um, make them driven based on events. Um, so we started looking at a way for you to have like a delivery pipeline and have SLO evaluations and have room for you to do chaos engineering, chaos testing that allowed for you to build confidence in making sure that every time you deploy to your next stage closer to the customer, you're still keeping the reliability goals in mind. And it, it's taken a lot of evolution. We've gotten a lot of feedback from users and we reached Captain 1.0 for KubeCon North America over in Detroit in October. So we're at Captain 1.0 and we're looking at, like we're, we're shifting to Captain Lifecycle Controller, which comes in more specifically with those events. We want to know how what we're deploying onto Kubernetes, how it's actually like being deployed and the evolution of it. Is there any issues? Is there anything in the logs that we can actually report back to Captain so that it can actually take action for you and help you get to the next stage or rollback and such? And we don't have that right now. Like we're we're deploying, and a lot of it ends up being manually still, like that pipeline. And we don't have consistency around applications. So we're really finding this phase where like big enterprises that need to roll out to 100 services at a time, they don't have an easy way to keep everything in the same consistent manner and making sure that that feedback loop is also like quick and tight. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to get me started on talking about the problem that we have on, underneath the DevOps pipeline. We have all this data that we do nothing with. Um, it's there and you could go dig for it to find the answer, but it's, we're not leveraging it to do to start automating responses. And uh, th that's what Ortelius is working with Captain on. So we, we probably should chat on a different time and, uh, and channel <laughs> and, and dig into it because it's a really interesting area. I mean, you know, if you talk to the Jenkins community, they're starting to look at CD events as well. And I believe that we'll see a shift in how pipelines are managed uh, over the course of the next few years. Do you think that people are going to start embracing an event-based, you know, listener? Just like we have, you know, cloud events, why not have CD events, right? I think we are because we, we're starting to see that our infrastructure is constantly changing. And if we don't have, like a way for that to report back, it's kind of hard to make sure that things are running smooth. Like I know with Captain, a lot of the work that's been done with workflows and Argo has been to push that forward. Like how can that workflow be as clean as possible that you can then actually integrate with another project such as OpenTelemetry to observe your entire deployment, which is kind of hard to do currently. Yeah. You want to tell us a little bit about OpenTelemetry? A lot of our viewers may not have uh, heard it or used it. Yeah, so OpenTelemetry is a project that was also, I think, started in 2019. This came together merging uh, from multiple projects working in the space from like Open Tracing was one of them. And, and Census. Census, yes, Open yeah. Census. And it kind of allows for you to have a vendor neutral way 
for you to collect telemetry data. So it leverages like the open telemetry collector that gets telemetry data such as events, logs, and traces from your applications, which you're instrumenting with OTEL libraries. And then the OTEL collector is able to send that over to your vendor of your choice, such as Lightstep, Honeycomb, Grafana, or an open source tool. And it's kind of neat in some ways. And I only got started in open telemetry when I joined Lightstep in 2022. But Adriana actually got a chance to be an end user before she started working at Lightstep. Um, that she might be able to chime in if I missed anything specific, Otel. Yeah, thank you. You got like the the main points of, of Otel. Um, the the so like the the collector is like. Um, so there, there's like different ways to send data to your observability back and you can do it directly from your code, but the recommended way is through the hotel collector because then you can, it, it's basically like a data pipeline. So you can extract, transform, um, and then send off your, your data to the observability vendor of your choice. And if you want, um, like the vendor neutral aspect of open telemetry and the collector makes it so that if you wanted to, you could send telemetry data to multiple um, observability backends. So if you're like considering two vendors, um, you can basically do a vendor bake-off. You're sending the same data to those two vendors and you can see how is it that they render your data differently, right? They're all receiving the same data. It's a matter of like what they do with the data that will help differentiate it. So my job before Lightstep at two cows, I was actually managing an observability team. And so we were trying to bring open telemetry into the organization because when we joined, it was basically like it was an observability team in name only. Um, they It was basically a team that managed a bunch of like internal open source tools. And I'm like, OK, no, <laughs> we need to standardize on things. And they were already using an observability vendor, like a SaaS product. So I'm like, OK, let's just ditch the internally managed tool. Let's make sure everyone pivots to this vendor that we're already using. Let's standardize on open telemetry. Um, and let's let's basically spread the word of observability to the rest of the organization. So we became like an observability practices team instead, um, focusing on like making sure that we are actually practicing observability rather than, oh, we're sending logs to blah, blah, blah vendor. We've got observability. Um, so that was like a really big part of our mission. But the the interesting thing was, um, so I joined Two Cows in 2021 and um, we were exploring open telemetry like in the summer, fall of 2021. And I think the Open telemetry traces had just gone to general availability in the fall. So I'm trying to pitch this thing that basically is like fairly new to this company. <laughs> say, guys, this is going to be the next big thing. Seriously, <laughs> y'all have to move over to this thing. And they're like, uh, open telemetry doesn't feel like it's ready yet. And I'm like, no, no, trust me, it's going to be the big thing. So here we are, um, open telemetry. I think now like metrics and traces are general availability logs are on their way. They're not there yet, but um, I think like so many improvements, so many different like strides have been made in open telemetry since I came into uh, using the the project. And now like I'm super excited to be part of the open telemetry community myself. Like I'm part of, um, I'm one of the leads of the open telemetry um, end user working group. So we're always looking for um 
people who use open telemetry in real life who can talk about like some of their challenges and so that we can share their feedback with the open telemetry maintainers so that they can continue to improve open telemetry. Very, uh, thank you for that. That was a great uh, description of open telemetry and its history. Uh, it is a, it's one of those open source projects that's a, an excellent example of when contributors, even competitors get together to solve a problem and they do a really good job of it. Uh, it's, you know, I started watching it when it first came out and people started talking about it. I was like, yeah, it's something that really needs to be done. But it's one of those things that it's like, you know, somewhere along the line, we all agreed on in the in the U.S. at least what plugs should look like, right? <laughs> now they're different in Europe, but all the plugs in Europe are different, different the same way. Um, so I, I don't think that a lot of people who are outside of the tech world understand the problems that we have of plugging things into each other. And open telemetry was a really good example of how to solve that problem. Um, I want to talk to you both about your branding. Both of you have your, you're out there. Um, I know, Anna, you, why don't you talk about your podcast for a minute? I don't think you, you told us about your podcast. <laughs> yeah. So it's not just my podcast. Adriana and I co-host uh, On Call Me Maybe podcast. So it's a light style, it's a light step sponsor podcast with a fun spin to it where we talk about DevOps, S3, on-call, internet response, observability, just about everything in between. And we really focus on having a, quite a diverse lineup from folks that just are getting started joining observability to folks that are launching companies in the internet response space or maybe just an S3 that's like coming and, and sharing the stories um, but it's been it's been really awesome to see it grow. We just wrapped up season one. So we have 13 episodes out there that folks can listen to. And just this upcoming February 14, we're actually launching season two and we put episodes out every single week. And there's a lot of, of fun speakers coming out this uh this season from like the security perspective to more of observability mindset, like quality assurance, like how do all these things kind of come together in the big world? I think that's awesome. That's awesome that you guys are able to do that because in terms of, you know, we are talking about tech strong women and we all know that women are don't normally go into this field oftentimes because they don't have good mentors and they don't, they're not looking up to people. But so you guys are, you know, we're trying to do that here at Text on Women. I think <laughs> what you guys are doing is pretty um, important too, so that we have younger women seeing us in these roles. It'll make it easier for them to go into these roles. And I have to tell you, both of you are from uh, Latin American countries and our Artilius project, some of our strongest contributors are from the same areas. Um, do you guys do any work with kind of really uh, encouraging other folks from Latin countries to get involved in open source? Have you thought about doing that? So I can only speak for myself. I work with um, organizations like such as Code 2040 and Tecnologicas that really focus on getting like uh, Latinos, Latinx, girls into code, especially from like a young age and code 2040 expands on also for black students as well. 
Um, but the focus is never specifically like open source. It's like, let's get you into the door of technology. Um, and I always felt that that has been the right choice. I think in the last three or four years, we have seen more movement when the pandemic of like open source is a great door to, for you to get into the tech community and especially like where you're now getting closer to U.S. market rates because you're in the open source community. Exactly. Um, and I know there's two organizations that specifically work with getting more students into open source that actually like give you grants. I know one of them is like Google Summer of Code yeah. um, and they like target a lot of diverse students. I know Captain works with them and um like th those kind of projects, like I'm, to me, make a lot of sense, but I have yet to go through like a one-on-one -on -one mentoring through one of them. I feel it's in general, in terms of a geographical area, it's, um, it's under leveraged. There's a lot of really technical people coming from, you know, Costa Rica and Brazil, um, I, all Chile, all over uh, Latin America, Mexico. Uh, some of our, literally some of our strongest contributors for Otilius come from those areas not women, though. We don't see as many women. So the two of you are also very unique. <laughs> and you're both at LightStep. So there was something going on there, right? Kudos to LightStep. Um, Adriana, you wrote a pretty interesting article that, um, you know, is near and dear to my heart. And some of it has to do with, uh, well, first of all, the article was on what you called psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And I talk to a lot of folks, especially in the SRE field, who don't feel like they have the ability to fail fast. Um, and for SREs, just like you described trying to bring in open telemetry, right? Upper management often doesn't provide us the ability to fail fast. Talk to us a little bit about that psychological safety and what it means to fail fast and how a team can grow from that. Yeah, so um, I can I can draw a, a lot of that. I draw from some of my own personal experience, like just you know being um, fresh out of school um, and making mistakes, right? And and feeling like there's like a magnifying glass on you um, whenever you make a mistake, and then the stakes get higher and higher. Like when you start you know, touching production systems, forget like making a mistake in code before it goes to production. But when you're like using a, you know, you're on a live production system and you make mistakes and something goes wrong and you've got like people breathing down your neck, either because you're the cause of it or because <laughs> they want you to fix it right away. And, you know, next thing you know, you find yourself on a call with like, you know, 15 people and a bunch of them are execs and they're like making suggestions like restart the database. I changed, I touched code 15 years ago and I remember that that's what you did. And you're like, oh my God, just go away. Let me do my damn Control, job. alt, delete. <laughs> Undo. Undo. Stressful situation. And under that magnifying glass and not being given the opportunity to like, just take a step back and do your thing and, you know, take, have a chance to fail, embrace failure. Um, that is so stressful for, for people who are under that magnifying glass, especially SREs and not being able to fail, fail fast. 
I think is a detriment because first of all, it causes like PTSD. I mean, there are people who will straight up never again, <laughs> like it says on call in the job description, bye-bye, right? Um, and and that's that's a shame because I think, you know, one of the things that Anna and I talked about, uh, like we had so many guests on our podcast where they showed us a better way to SRE. So I know that there's a better way to SRE out there. Um, one of them is just having that kind of empathy and allowing people to learn from their mistakes. I mean, as technologists, we, the, our biggest learnings are from our mistakes. You know, it's great when something works right off the bat, you know, Oh, it worked just like in the manual. Awesome. But like our greatest learnings are from the things that like go up in flames, you know, the raging dumpster fires. Those are the, those are the greatest opportunities to learn stuff. And if we're suppressing that um, in our engineers, then that's like a lost opportunity. Right. Um, because yeah, upper, upper management has to be have, have, have their teams back. Right. Yeah, they have to be yeah. able to say, they have to stand up there. It comes from, either the director level or at minimum, the manager level, they have to have their teams back in order for that to, to work. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And without that support, like it, it you know, you're, you're not going to trust your manager if, if you know, your manager doesn't, doesn't have your back and then you'll, you'll not be, you won't be forthcoming with them. And you certainly won't be like, oh yeah, that was my fault. Like I, I have no problem admitting to a mistake but it's like extra scary when you know that it's going to cause like, you know, your manager and his manager and his manager to like come <laughs> breathing. And over that's him. a problem because yeah. everybody in technology is going to make a mistake. And we should be able to say, hey, I made a mistake. We got I know how to fix it. Let's move forward. Let me fix it. Let's move forward, which takes me to chaos engineering. Um, I did a, I did a um, kind of a book club on chaos engineering because I find it to be um, way overdue. Uh, and uh, the the author was Casey Rosenthal. He said something of you know I said give me a an, give me an example of chaos engineering. And he said and there was a guy on the Zoom who had a cat sitting on the back of his chair and his name was George. And he said well let's assume George's cat gets sick and. George is up all night because he had to take his cat to the emergency room and he gets to work the next morning and he has to do a production release and he fat fingers something. <laughs> Traditionally, what we would do is spend all this time screaming at each other, trying to find out what happened, looking for root cause analysis. And the root cause analysis was George's cat. <laughs> How did that benefit us? What we really have to do is build a good way to respond to any problem. It's the response that's critical, not looking for root cause analysis or to point fingers. That is the essence of failing fast, right? A hundred percent. And like, it's like, you don't necessarily just have to embrace failure. I go ahead and I say, you need to look for opportunities to fail, like create those opportunities and constantly practice it. Because one, like, it goes to like the idea of unknown, unknown failures that can happen to your system. And you kind of want to play with your systems to find where it can break so that you go ahead and you make your resilient to those failures. But at the same time, you don't want to stop there because our systems are quite complex and they're constantly changing. That means that every single failure is going to be different than the last. So you also have to get comfortable with setting up a cadence to do these type of like failure injections or just 
the failovers between data centers or running runbooks. That way your team actually knows what to do when that moment comes that they actually do need to restore from a backup, that they need to deploy a whole bunch of new services or restart um, like some of the, the servers that are running on COBOL or anything like that. Yeah, those game days are so important. I mean, imagine, just imagine if we never sent, I mean, think SREs are first responders. If we look at the industry of first responders and take like firefighting, for example, thank goodness that we don't wait for a fire before we send a firefighter into a burning building. They go and they go practice that. So why should uh, the SRE role be any different? They should have that opportunity to go through that, do their fail fast, have the support of their upper management and have game days to learn how to do it. The last thing you really want to do is try, as you both of you being on call, and I have been there too, is try to debug something at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's a horrible time or really bad for me would be Friday at five o'clock, <laughs> 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 which is generally when those problems occur because they're like, oh, we'll deploy something on Friday. And then the person on call is sitting there while everybody else goes to the bar. <laughs> Yeah, that first responder analogy is really, I've never heard anybody use that for SRE, but it's really appropriate because, I mean, think about, you know, you're a, you're an, a paramedic, but no one teaches you to do CPR until somebody needs it. And, and they're like, okay, let's out. learn CPR right now. That is an, that's an amazing analogy, Tracy. <laughs> Because you guys really are first responders, for sure. You are a first responder. SREs are first responders. They're the ones that are sticking their neck out. They're the ones that are going to take the chance to see if this will work to get the system up and running. And that's that psychological safety is such a great term. And I really enjoyed the article. I encourage everybody to go to the Lightstep blogs and look look up that article about psychological safety in the workplace. It's important, especially for SREs, because I've met some really stressed out DevOps engineers and SREs, especially during COVID, holy Toledo, what was going on there? Why was there so much? What was your, I, what, what, yeah, what was your experience? We, we ran a conference, a gremlin called Failover Conf, which was like our response to all the events actually being canceled due to COVID. And we're like, hey, speakers, Failover, you're talking to another conference come to failover comp. <laughs> and one of the speakers was from pager duty. I like, I can't remember who she was right now, but she gave an amazing talk, like of starting to look at the data that was coming in for, for incidents that were happening that year. And you can start seeing like the increase in the amount of incidents. You can start seeing like the increase of amount of pages that they were getting compared to like prior to COVID-19 being as big as it was in early 2020. Um, And a lot of it was because we were stressing our systems to extreme demands that no one had ever thought about. All of a sudden, all of us had to use online banking because we couldn't go into a branch to find out our balance, to make a transaction, something that you would do by just walking on over or driving over. Then we also saw like a movement to like delivery applications for groceries, for pharmacy. And those were maybe getting like, let's say 20 visitors a day. Now you're looking at 100, 200 visitors a day and the system couldn't handle that amount of unique IDs signing in along with running like all those like uh, synchronous like 
uh, executions on the API that they were leveraging. And then we also have hard drives filling up with data. So all these things happening in these complex systems, I think, led to a lot of cascading failures. Uh, and we already were, as a society, pretty stressed out. So I think it all ended up being like a bad mixture and companies were not set to be on call. So they didn't have healthy practices at all. Like there was documentation out there on how to do it, but not as many organizations were actually following through on like doing blameless postmortems, making sure that you're doing handoffs on incidents and like timely manners or even have worked with the teams long enough to know how to like triage an incident. Like there was no game days and all of a sudden you were having failures and it's the first time that like you're doing a Zoom incident response. And like, it's not the same to be in the same room than when you have 20 people on a Zoom call or maybe even more because people are like, well, I'm bored. This seems like a water cooler. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, uh, you know, it, the SREs during COVID were unsung heroes that don't get enough credit for keeping the systems up and running. Um, it, like you said, everything from doing your banking to grocery shopping, something so basic, right? <laughs> Can you imagine what those systems are looking like when everybody was doing, you know, they had not only just, just that, just the stress of their own lives and they're having to, to add all of that on top of it. So Adriana, we're, you know, we're, we're, I don't want to um, end this call without letting you talk a little bit about what Lightstep is up to and um, why observability is so important uh, to SREs. Um, well, I would say observability basically gives SREs superpowers. Um, you know, like uh, Anna and I had uh, had a discussion where, you know, I was talking about like modern SRE practices. And I would say, you know, modern SRE practices, quote unquote, is about making sure that you've got observability as part of your tool belt of, of in, in SRE. Um, because observability gives you that, you know, information about your system, right? It's it's about giving you the the information so that you can follow the breadcrumbs to understand why is this happening, right? Um, and yeah, we had like logs and stuff before back in the day, awesome. But um, now, like we we've, I'd like to think we've moved beyond that. I mean, observability is. Uh, you know, people talk about like the the three pillars of observability. Um, I like to think that observability is more trace driven with metrics and logs playing supporting roles, and all of them come together to to basically explain what's going on. Right, the traces give you that end to end view of your system. Right, so now all of a sudden you have a story happening unraveling in your system from the minute that user says, okay, add this to my shopping cart to, you know, it going all the way to whatever, however many microservices and back and adding it and the user seeing that item in their shopping cart. Um, now you have that end-to-end -end visibility. So you've got the traces telling the story. The metrics can provide additional information um, like latency and you know any other stuff like cpu levels memory usage and then the logs give you that extra contextual information of like oh this is the thing that happened at this particular point in time when this other sub operation was occurring can you imagine not having like that 
nice end-to-end picture. Um, and so that I'd say this is this is the place of of observability in in the SRE world. And how do you, I mean, in terms of, we talk about self-healing and Kubernetes being self-healing. Um, how far are we? I'm not in the observability state space. I understand it. But how far are we from being able to take that information and start automating some of the fixes that SREs normally would have to go out and do manually? I mean, are observability tools starting to do that? Not just providing the information, but acting upon the information? I feel like we've got a bunch of the pieces in place that can enable us to do that. Like, I think SLOs can help drive some of that. Um, and then there's like a bunch of tools that um, that automate workflows. So then you can have like, you know, your SLOs ingest the data emitted by um, by your by your system. Like it ingests your telemetry that that. Um, that drives the SLO, and then you know you hit a, you hit a particular target in your SLO that can trigger a particular workflow to do blah right. It's like oh my CPU is down to like you know it's it, it's like ninety nine percent usage. Oh that's that's like too high. So then it can trigger some some sort of workflow to to do whatever to lower that uh, that CPU usage. I, I definitely think that we've got a lot of the pieces in play. I guess the question is whether or not. Um, We've got companies taking advantage of that and whether or not, uh, so both internally, like companies using their their available tooling to do that, and then startups basically saying, hey, that's a cool idea. We can make a product out of that. <laughs> we we actually had, uh, that was actually one of the things that we did with Captain, like the auto remediation steps at first. That was like the... So one of the amazing use cases that folks were using it for where it's like you have the SLO, which is kind of driven by observability. Uh, and then that would allow for you to like SLO breach. Here's the auto remediation. You just need to scale pods. And then now your SLA, SLO is actually accurate. So you're good. And now you can actually promote this to production. Um, I can see, I've seen a lot more companies working in that space of auto remediation I think it would make sense if it's observability companies helping a lot drive, like help drive this movement a lot more. But I think we also leave it up to customers and, and users to decide what they want to do. Like, do they want the company that has all those observability data to actually be taking actions upon their systems? Because that's also like a different privilege than what you're letting folks get from telemetry data. And we just brought the conversation all the way back around to CD events. <laughs> because that's really what we're talking about, right? Being able to have a standard listener and be able to execute a workflow with a payload based on that standard listener, whether that listener be looking over the CD pipeline or looking at observability triggers. That is why I, I preach events so strongly in the CD pipeline because this is where we're going to build our real automation. And automation is key in all of this. And as you both know, with microservices, you just have that much more. Instead of just de deploying one monolithic all the time, now you're deploying a, a giant Lego system. 
So <laughs> if CD events, I think will save us in the future. Oh, let's just end it on that. You guys have the best little terms for stuff. <laughs> I love having a bake-off, Adriana, that was like amazing. <laughs> First responders. I mean, we came up with a lot of really fun stuff here. Um, before we finish up here, can one of you guys give us the skinny on the On Call Me Maybe podcast? Where can people find it? When when is new? When do new episodes show up? So we're launching season two on February 14th. Um, and also we're super excited about the season because we've uh, revamped some of our branding. Um, so we've got some fun, uh, some fun graphics. We've got uh, our on call me, maybe llamas um, <laughs> <laughs> that are part, part of our, our new uh Part of our new look. Um, yeah, so we just posted on on our socials today with a, with our llamas teasing uh, season two. Um, you can find us on all the socials. Um, I think we've got pretty much everything. We've got LinkedIn, Twitter, Mastodon, TikTok, um, Instagram, and YouTube. So be sure to follow us on all of those. Everywhere. That's <laughs> we awesome. Will. We will. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. That what a great conversation. It's it's really exciting to see uh the younger women that are out there. And it was a know, pleasure, ladies. Being, it really being, was being active and and we really appreciate you taking time. We we know you are busy SREs. So <laughs> we appreciate you taking time to be with us. And um Thanks for everyone for tuning into another episode of Tech Strong Women. Uh, we'll see you soon and keep watching Tech Strong TV for great content and great interviews. Thanks, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.